All right, welcome to the White Collar Crimes Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Horn. It is so good to have you here aboard, as always, every week. Some of the cases, most of the cases we talk about on this podcast, they result in people that are victimized, they are ripped off financially, they have their financial lives ruined, the perpetrator gets very little or no time, maybe some civil fines or something like that. A few extreme cases we've talked about in this podcast have resulted in death from these crimes. And that is exactly what is the topic and focus on this podcast. And this is a case that I would say very few of you are familiar with. It's not one that got a whole lot of publicity compared to these others. And it could be this one's 40 years old. But you're going to see some similarities between this and the Ford Pinto case. If you have been with this podcast all along, you'll remember in the early days of this, we covered the Ford Pinto case. And that was a case where a corporation, for the first time in U.S. history, was charged with murder. Ford was charged with murder in a case that happened in Elkhart, Indiana, where the Ford Pinto was exploding upon very little minimal impact in a rear-end collision. Some young teenage girls died. They found out later Ford very cheaply could have fixed this problem but chose not to and endangered their customers and the public. And they were charged as a corporation with murder. Now, ultimately, what happened in court, they were acquitted because the court ruled that you can't charge a corporation, per se, with murder. But fast forward really just a few years later here in the early 80s, we have a company called Film Recovery Systems. Now, Film Recovery Systems was a company based in Elk Grove, Illinois, which is a suburb just outside of Chicago. Now, they came into controversy in 1983 when they were accused of failing to protect their employees from cyanide fumes and exposure. And this is around the time, if you also remember correctly, the... uh, cyanide scare that happened with Tylenol in this area at the time when there was a poisoning. This is what actually led to the extra security on the caps and things like that with medications and tons of other products that we have. This was my understanding as a result of that. I was about nine years old, I think, when this happened, and I remember the scare that it caused in that area, and everybody was scared of cyanide at the time and being exposed and probably didn't do too well for Tylenol sales, although obviously they survived it. They are still around. But they came into controversy at this time for failing to protect their employees from the cyanide fumes. Now, the cyanide was an ingredient that was crucial and was used to strip the silver from x-ray film for recycling. This is a business, I don't know much about medical technology. This might be one of those businesses that today may not be in business anymore due to technological advancements that have made them obsolete. I don't know, but at this time, they were in business and doing pretty well. But as we said, exposure to cyanide can be deadly, and it was discovered that the company failed to provide the employees adequate gear or proper ventilation from the toxic fumes. Now, we've covered a lot of cases in here that, uh, you know, that we just talked about a second ago, the Ford Pinto case, but we've covered other cases where Early in here, we had the mine case uh, in uh, asbestos case up there in Montana with the mine, the Grace Mining Company, where they knowingly let workers in entire towns, in an entire town, get exposed to deadly asbestos and basically ended up causing a town to have to be shut down and become a ghost town. 
and they knowingly did this and sent it out there. We have covered the Flint, Michigan water scandal case where the government also was negligent in, in their water quality and poisoned God knows how many people in the Flint area. So it's not the first time this has happened in this podcast where we've covered cases that due to the employer's neglect, the workers suffered deadly consequences. Now, the neglect, this would prove deadly for a Polish immigrant by the name of Stefan Golob. And he was only 59 when he passed away. He had been a steel construction worker in his native Poland, but came to the United States and settled in the Chicago area and landed a job with the film Recovery Systems, as I said, in Elk Grove, which is a suburb just outside of Chicago. But soon on the job, he began to complain of headaches and vomiting. He was vomiting frequently. Now, right away, you're probably not going to think it's just your employer or anything like that. You're probably going to not even be sure right out of the gate. I know a few years ago, I had E. coli poisoning, and it was very horrible. And a lot of horrible symptoms like that uh, and more. You know, I had chills and fevers and a lot of other things until I finally got it nailed down through testing. But at this time... I'm sure the medical technology didn't allow things. I'm sure there was testing where you could find things out, but it probably wasn't as easy to pinpoint it down as it is 40 years later here. Because we're talking the early 80s here, 1983 or so. It was so bad that he requested a transfer to his boss. Now, he did this through an interpreter because it was reported that Mr. Golob spoke little to no English. Now, this transfer did not happen. doesn't say really whether it was denied or just hadn't gotten around to it before he met his unfortunate fate or anything like that. But he was denied this request. And as I said, he spoke little to no English. And it is believed that it is possible he could have thought these skull and bones on the, the skull and bones that you see on poison items, things like that. It was on this barrel. But they reported that in his native Poland, that is interpreted as high voltage. So he may have disinterpreted it as long as I don't expose myself to it and as long as I don't touch it when I'm wet or anything that would make you vulnerable to high voltage, he probably thought he was okay. Uh, I don't know how it is in a lot of countries. I know there's people, those of you that are listening, people from other countries here. In the United States, the skull and bones on a bottle or barrel means poison, but apparently in his native Poland, at least at that time, it meant high voltage. So he may not have really understood the harm that he was being exposed to at that time as far as what he was breathing in and all the other types of toxic cyanide fumes that he was being exposed to. Two and a half hours into one shift, he and a co-worker, Roman Gusowski, were working over a 1,000-gallon tank filled with water. Now, at this time, Golob turned pale, and he felt very, very faint. Now, his co-worker there, Roman, he urged him to go outside, which was protocol when the uh, haze and the air quality in the facility became yellowish. And when inside, when it became yellowish and got to be too much, the protocol at that factory at that time was that you go outside. And 
till it gets better, then you can go back in when the exposure is not too bad. Maybe at this time, it was bad enough where it was yellowish and they figured it was the right thing to do to get out and take a little bit cooler of a break. Let it chill out in there some, probably they thought nothing bad, we go through this all the time. Just a little bit of a break and he'll clear up and be as good as new. Probably, I don't know what he had as far as sick leave or anything like that at that job. If he was able to go home two and a half hours into a shift if he was sick and not feeling well. But he was having to go outside and they probably thought that was at the time what would actually fix it. But it didn't because soon after that, Mr. Golob would collapse into a chair and began to foam at the mouth. So obviously the going outside and stepping away from the yellow haze and the exposure did not fix the problem. In fact, it worsened. And as I said, he would collapse into a chair and foam at the mouth. Now, by the time paramedics arrived, sadly, Mr. Golob had passed away. Originally, they thought a heart attack was what was expected. 59, that's fairly young, and people are living a lot longer now and then. Even 40 years ago, I think 59 would have been considered pretty young. So originally it was just expected he just had a heart attack. Certainly people that young or younger have them all the time. So that's originally what was thought. Some of the symptoms were there. He turned pale, a little foaming at the mouth, some other probably similar symptoms he was showing that would be similar to a heart attack. But nonetheless, that is what was originally suspected. But... Fortunately, in this day and age we live in in modern science, and we are very blessed, and even 40 years ago, the technology existed to perform an autopsy and really get down to the nitty-gritty and just see what was causing this and what was happening. And an autopsy would show a quite different result than just a standard common heart attack. The autopsy showed that he had died of a lethal exposure to cyanide lethal exposure they note so the amount that he was being exposed to daily and all of his co-workers in this time obviously could prove deadly and he it was unfortunately that i have able to find and research the first casualty of this company and their neglect but nonetheless he did pass away from the exposure to this cyanide and again I think at this time, I remember the Tylenol scare around this time, we were only really beginning to understand as a country just how deadly and lethal this drug is and exposure to it and everything else like that what can be. So that's what this at this time shows. Now, the president, Stephen O'Neill, and two other executives with the company were charged with Golob's murder. Now, Keep in mind, I want you to note here, this is where it kind of differs from the Ford Pinto case because I think prosecutors learned their lesson. And oddly, that happened in Elkville, Indiana, and this happened in Chicago. They are not terribly far from each other geographically. There's Illinois and Indiana are neighboring states. For those of you that are maybe listening from another country, may not be quite familiar with the geography here in the United States, these are literally probably just a few, couple few hundred miles away in distance. But this time, I think prosecutors learned their lesson on what to avoid because they wanted to try to find out what happened, and they also wanted somebody held accountable. And at this time, they learned you can't charge a corporation with murder. The court had already ruled that. 
But there's nothing the law says that you certainly cannot charge individual members of a corporation with murder, especially if their actions are neglectful and they have been, in this case, certainly you'll see in a little bit, they certainly were neglectful. And when that can happen, not only can they be held civilly liable, which is certainly much easier to prove than criminal neglect or anything like that, or criminal, in this case, a actual homicide, But in this case, that is exactly what they did. They charged three officials with this company, with Mr. Golob's murder. Now, under the Ford case, where only the corporation was charged, that got a lot of headlines, as I said a little bit ago, because that was the first time in the country even that had been tried. So maybe that's why this case doesn't get the publicity. That did because... It was not the first, and also this was a case where they finally just went after individual members of the corporation and not any particular corporation as a whole. Now, granted, this film recovery systems, I doubt they have anywhere near the clout and money that the Ford Corporation had, so it might have been much easier to go after them and their their corporate officers and things like that than it was against Ford, because as we know worldwide, not just in the United States, Ford is a giant in the automobile industry and going after a corporation of that size just a titan of the automobile industry that was no easy feat because Elkhart Indiana is a mostly somewhat rural small town kind of area and that was very difficult for a prosecutor with resources like that to take down a corporation like that but here it's a little different this is a decent sized company but it's certainly no Ford and it's much easier to go after officers and take down a company like that than it is, again, like I said, for a behemoth like Ford was and still is to this day. Now, Stephen O'Neill, the president, along with Charlie Kirschbaum, or I'm sorry, Kirschbaum, and Daniel Rodriguez were brought to trial in April 1985. So we're talking at this point about two years after he had passed away after Mr. Golob had passed away. Now, the defense countered, there was plenty of safety equipment on hand, and the company had never been found guilty of any OSHA violations. And again, if you're listening from overseas, OSHA, they're the ones a lot of times, the Occupational Safety Hazard Administration, they are responsible for standards and also maintaining uh safety in a workplace and establishing standards. My understanding, they're the ones that ended up mandating the little beeping backup sound or beeping sound you'll hear on forklifts and things like that around factories. They're the ones that brought that about. So they point that out, and that was true, that at that point, OSHA had never come down on them for any type of violations or anything like that. So they're saying, hey, we've given all the equipment that he needed and the other workers needed, We've never been found guilty of violating any safety standards in the past, so therefore, we still stand by our claim that he had a heart attack, even though the autopsy, a medical examiner, a doctor in Cook County, said otherwise. Now, this was an eight-week trial, went on pretty long for a while. 61 witnesses of this facility would testify to the horrid conditions inside this factory. And when I did this one, I remembered a case we did about a year ago on this podcast about the Iowa slaughterhouse in the the kosher slaughterhouse up in Iowa, where it was found that they were employing a huge number of illegal immigrants 
because they figured they would just take the abuse just to be here and so they could get the money and they wouldn't report anything because they would fear being deported. I don't know. I wasn't able to find how many of these 61 were similar, but I'm wondering if a lot of them were in situations they were they were immigrants like Mr. Golub, and maybe the company felt it was easier to take advantage of them because they wouldn't complain or anything like that. I don't know. I wasn't able to find anything definite on that, but you certainly have to wonder because that was the case in the Iowa kosher slaughterhouse where they were taking advantage of massive amounts of illegal immigrants and exploiting their labor for money and making them work in just horrid, squalid conditions. And 61 employees testified to that fact here. And it kind of reminded me of a situation when I first began my law enforcement career about 25 years ago. I was working at the county jail, and there was a huge drug case going on in this area here. It was a federal case. And one of the guys I worked with at that time, he moonlighted as a a police officer part-time in another town nearby where, you know, weekends or evenings off from work, things like that. A lot of people in that business do because, you know, your pay is not always that great. So you got to make up the difference elsewhere. But anyway, he did that and he pulled this guy over and was part of that guy's drug case. And he said at the time, and I can't remember, I think it was more than 61 even. We'll just say uh, 85 just as a guess. And I don't recall how many, but 85 witnesses took the stand against this guy. And he made a good point at the time. You know, he said they may not believe all 85 of them. But I guarantee the jury's probably going to believe at least two or three, and that's enough to find them guilty. And that's what film recovery systems found themselves up against, because they had 61 people that were able to testify to the horrid conditions in this place that obviously they were able to piece together that led to uh, Stefan Golob's death, the exposure to all these horrible things and the lack of care and prevention and safety precautions by this company led to his death and could have led to others. I'm sure plenty that worked there of these 61 later on had very severe health problems and things of that sort as well. Now, Judge Ronald Banks found that they had exposed Golob and others to, quote, totally unsafe working conditions without fair warning, training, or safeguards. Now, on July 1st, 1985, Judge Banks sentenced each of those three to 25 years in prison, and each were fined over $10,000 each, which 40 years ago, $10,000 would probably be, I would guess to say, probably around 40 grand today each. Decent fine, but the 25 years, it's a pretty decent sentence for a white-collar crime. So kudos to the justice system in Cook County at this time for getting this one right. Now, unlike the Ford case, at least these victims did get some type of closure because oftentimes that does not happen in these cases. Now, I don't know. I didn't research it to see, but I'm pretty sure uh, the families of uh, family of Golob and some of these other ones that suffered probably most likely health problems for the rest of their lives from working here were probably able to pursue civil action as well against this company, which I don't know how far they're going to get it when their top brass are all behind bars. No, uh word on their whereabouts most likely i would say a lot of them are probably already deceased at this time the ones that did time and the ones that worked there or near it at least near probably passing away if they didn't suffer from any long-term health problems from this so it's hard to say what they did and where their whereabouts were after this case but like i said at least they did get some type of justice in this case 
And that's what we help to like to expose on this show because many times white collar crimes don't get the justice they need. And that's why it's important for you to continue to tune in to us, to like us on Spotify or Apple or wherever you're following us. Please give us the five-star rating. Follow our Facebook page, change the name to the White Collar Crimes Podcast, so please like and follow that. Stay tuned for updates. We appreciate that. Email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com. If you've got an idea for a show or if you want to be a guest, be glad to hear from you on either. And check out my website, ryan-horn.com. If you need any voiceover work, like I said, uh, In Danger of Judgment is out right now on Beacon Audiobooks, so please check that out on Amazon and Audible. I've also narrated two others, two, I'm sorry, two for Cherry Hills Publication and also another one for Apple Hill, uh, for Beacon Audiobooks that will be coming out shortly. So please tune into those and please listen. Definitely support, love your support. And also check out your local pet shelter. Wife and I are just finishing up, been fostering a couple little border collie puppies, little sisters. They're going to their forever homes tomorrow. The joy we get from that's just it's just un, undescribable. So please check out your shelter and get your next best friend there as well. Please look out for your friends and family, folks. There's always scammers out there waiting to take advantage of them. And we appreciate you helping us educate everybody on it. But it takes all of us, as they say, and it's really true, to look out for each other. And we appreciate you looking out and keeping us going here. Thank you for tuning in. We will see you next week. God bless and take care, everybody.